Welcome to Our Kids, the podcast hosted by three college buddies, Lisa Reese and Tracy, where we talk about all things art. In this episode, we interview adolescent medicine specialist and pediatrician, Dr. Janet Lee. Freedom, freedom, freedom over fame, freedom over cycle stays the same. I thought it was funny how the last time we said happy week and I appreciated that because we never know what day we record on. So happy week. Yay, yay. Yeah. How was everyone's week? I don't know. Oh, fabulous. Yeah, my week has been fabulous. I've been kind of busy doing some design work. So Ooh, how's that going? All right. It's cool. It's design yeah. work, you know. It's like puzzle puzzle pieces and stuff fitting it all together yeah we are uh coming off of a full moon yeah aries full moon my full moon and janet too you're an aries aren't you yes yeah right on our full moon all right well today we're back to interviewing other people (laughs) so (laughs) our episode today we're going to be talking to dr janet lee who is an adolescent medicine specialist and pediatrician um janet's clinical and academic interests include community engaged healthcare, informatics and mental health in the primary care setting she is from new york we went to college with her Go yeah. <laughs> and uh currently she's in pennsylvania near philly just outside of philly um but we're excited to have her on so she can talk to us about mental health and art and how they come together and how they help each other and or how they've been I don't know connected in history and maybe not so much of a a good light in terms of substance use and mental health and art and artists but um yeah so thanks for being with us you want to start out and give us a little little intro to your background, explain, you know, your current role and um, really what you're up to. Sure. Uh, So I guess I will first say that I'm so excited to be on this podcast with you guys because I'm a huge fan. Mm -hmm. So I'm coming to you as like a super fan, which is really exciting and seemingly have nothing to do with art, which is also kind of funny. (laughs) But I feel like... (laughs) The way that I'll try to be relevant today is I ask questions for a living. So I'm excited to ask you guys questions about sort of what motivates you and your journey, just sort of delving more into those stories. Thanks for the, your your personal uh, stories. When we, we had that series, I feel like even though I know you guys all pretty well, it was really exciting to learn more about you. Um, I'm not super great at talking about myself, but I will do my best. So um for artists and maybe your listeners, you might not know too much about the, the medical training process. So I guess I'll tell you a little bit about that. Um, maybe you've watched Grey's Anatomy, so hopefully that'll help. Um, 
Um, but I went to SUNY New Paltz with these lovely individuals. Um, and then I came to Philadelphia for medical school afterwards. Why did I want to go to medical school? I like always kind of wanted to be a doctor since I was little. I like the idea of getting to know people intimately and working with them closely. I think that that's a very different language that I'm using to describe that now. But when I was younger, it was like, I think most kids are like, I want to help people, right? Um, and so, yeah, I didn't really know what I was going to do when I went to medical school. Um, some people have a really clear idea of what they want to do. Um, pediatrics was not something that I like knew that I was going to do. I was never around children, so I didn't know that I really liked them. That's like, of course, that's what people want to hear about their pediatrician, right? They're like, she didn't even like kids. Um, but you know, I think adult medicine or the way that I experienced it as a student, it felt like a lot of chronic disease management, sort of more end of life issue stuff. It felt really emotionally challenging and a little bit um, emotionally detached at times. You know, you have so many patients who are sick and elderly and dying. And I think what I noticed in a lot of people perhaps as like a logical kind of coping mechanism, it felt like they were kind of emotionally detached. And I didn't love that. Something felt really off about that to me. Um, when I did my peds rotation, I felt like people were so much more open about how invested they were in children and families. And there's this like endless hopeless idealism of just like everything has to be better because we have to make the world better place for kids. And I'm like, this makes sense to me, right? You know, it sort of spoke to, to kind of, I think what was sort of motivating me through the process. So I decided to do peds. Um, so I went to New York to do my residency, which was three years. So I did that. And then um, you have the opportunity to do something called a fellowship, which is an additional training after you do your residency. So it, during your residency, you're an actual doctor, but you're still kind of training. So you're a doctor in training. And then um, fellowship, you do a subspecialization in something if you want to. And so probably most people are not familiar with adolescent medicine as a subspecialty. Like, what is that? I had never met one until... Um, I was in residency, but essentially they are specialists of the of the adolescent years, which is interesting because most other specialists are are specialists of an organ, like cardiologists are specialists of the heart, neurologists are specialists of the brain. So what is a teenager specialist, right? It's not it's not an organ. It's an interesting short time frame in someone's life. Um, but I mean, I don't have to tell you guys, right? Like. Teenagers are super hard and super complicated biochemically, hormonally, socially, like everything can sort of change during that time period. And I don't know. I don't know. You know, I feel like sometimes things sort of choose you. Like I remember being in residency, all the teenage cases just kind of came to me. It seemed to like sort of work out best, like the teenagers that were pregnant or the ones that were struggling with suicidal thoughts, like it all just, I don't know, seemed to work better uh, for me. And then I realized that not everybody really had a passion for taking care of teenagers. So I was like, okay, this sort of makes sense. So that's kind of how I ended up on that path. Um, and I think, you know, my job is challenging at times, right? I, I work with teenagers going through some of the hardest things they will ever go through in their entire life. And 
you know, I really try to be there with them in those moments. But yeah, it can be a lot at times to sort of to carry that with them, if that makes any sense. But so yeah, so that's a little bit about me. That well, that was a lot about me, but it was beautiful. Oh, thank you. It's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) That what I was expecting you to say. Uh, really is. I think, it, and I also think it's one of those times when the parents aren't always going to be able to be there in the capacity that kids need during that age. And I think at least like talking to you and, and talking about the work that you've done with your patients, I feel like you are that person for them. Yeah. Uh, and you're, you're a resource outside of their family that they really feel confident. Yeah. Yeah. I tell kids and and mostly parents, I'm not here to replace you. Like, absolutely not. I'm not here to replace you. And actually, teenagers have the best health outcomes when their parents are involved and kids and parents are having conversations. I'm just there to be another trusted adult. That's all. And teenagers need lots of those people in their life. Um, And I think obviously there's advantages if it's a healthcare provider who you can talk to, like, I did this thing and it's not safe and I can't tell my mom. Um, you know, and again, there's, it gets complicated at times with confidentiality and all that other stuff. But yeah, I think it's important for, for teenagers to like be their truth selves without feeling like they're going to get in trouble. And arguably, isn't it, that's like that for all of us, right? Mm -hmm. Like we need to be able to be our true selves so that even when we're not good, like we can still get the help and support that we need, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And a big part of your role as their physician is dealing with mental health. Um, And I think today we really kind of wanted to dive into more about mental health and, and how kind of like the then and now I know for us, we're, you know, in our later thirties and um, what the landscape of how the landscape of mental health has changed in terms of how, how teens are growing up and, in this world, how the youth is growing up in this world, what's expected of us, and also kind of the um, the community support that is out there now and the resources that are out there now and the way we, it's it's just accepted as a part of life and, and it's really embraced to like care for folks' mental health. And I think we've talked a lot about um, in previous episodes how art can really... Um, be a medicine in a way like the process of creation or the art itself we talked a little bit about art therapy in the past so just um yeah just getting your your thoughts and like your experiences about including art and creativity in um in like mental health therapies yeah um I guess one thing that maybe I'll clarify is I am not a psychiatrist, right? So Mm -hmm. as much as a lot of um, the work that I do kind of centers around mental health issues, I'm a primary care doctor, right? Who, who cares for like the quote unquote, the body. Um, But what I'll tell like kids and families all the time is I care about your body, soul and mind, right? Like most teenagers are very physically healthy, but like the emotional stuff, the mental stuff, societal pressures, trauma, all of that's really the thing that's driving most of the disease, the morbidity and mortality in this age range. Um, 
But I think the thing that's cool about being a primary care doctor and thinking about mental health is like, how do you, that then we're actually saying that this is on even footing with asthma, right? Because it's like, if your primary doctor values mental health the same way that we do other medical problems, that's not like I have to send you to somebody else for that, right? And I think that that's been a really big shift um, in healthcare post-pandemic, right? The the burden of known and out mental health, we'll say mental health problems has really gone up astronomically. And so the existing mental health providers haven't been able to absorb that burden of incoming patients. And so most large medical professional organizations have put out these big calls to be like primary care doctors, family medicine doctors, adult medicine doctors, pediatricians, like we need to do this now because there's nobody else, right? And we didn't have the training, like we didn't know how to prescribe meds or screen for suicide or any of that sort of stuff. But there's been a massive push to do that. And I think, you know, I, I can only sort of speak to what like pediatric organizations have said, but the, the value that we have as primary care doctors is like, we tend to be like likable, trusted people. We're not like mental health other, right? And so I think utilizing people like us to sort of say like, hey, this is important, I think has helped a lot more people to kind of get their diagnoses, get the help that they need. Um, and it's been a very, it, it's like, hasn't been that long that there's been this big of a shift, but I feel like at least on the medical community side, I think that's been really important. I think as far as creativity and all of that goes, I think one of the things that's been kind of interesting to me, like taking care of, of young people who've been struggling with diagnosed problems or screening for depression, anxiety, suicide, which we do in sort of a standard format now, why do we wait so long until there is these big problems, right? Like how do we, how, like, why can't people be well? How do we teach people to be well? Recognizing when you're feeling anxious before it turns into like a panic attack and things like that, right? And there's there so many factors, but I think that really, you know, utilizing art in a whole variety of specific um, like psychotherapy type of strategies can be really helpful tools. I think that the studies are kind of not there yet um, because again, this was sort of like a niche research uh, research market before there, there was all of this kind of stuff. But I think that there's a much bigger focus on building healthy coping strategies, building resilience, um, as opposed to like waiting till people break down, you know? Um, and I know Tracy, we were talking about this. What was it? The, um, what was the drug, the Zoloft commercial where it's like depression is a chemical imbalance and look, you're this little sad white ball and Mm -hmm. then you're on meds now and you're better. And like, that's it. Right. That was what we were being told as a generation. Right. So the fact that we're talking about like, uh, I don't know, coping skills and stuff like that, that this is like unheard of. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't know that I answered your question actually. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) it wasn't necessarily a question. It was more of like, here are some words. Uh, but I think that, I think overall, just the stigma is kind of being lifted. And I do think the fact that now the approach is the initial approach is coming from the primary care versus like, this isn't something that, you know, like this isn't something that I can help you with. You have to go see a specialist. Like it's, a, it's almost, it was almost like, you're like, 
oh no, something's like really wrong with me. You know, like there, there was this whole nother level of anxiety put onto the fact that this was something you needed help with. And it was just like passed off onto somebody else. And then it was your responsibility or your parents' responsibility um, to go and seek that help out elsewhere. Um, you know, and, and thinking about that, um, that commercial and just in general, and we talked about this before, but like almost the, the correlation of substance abuse and mental health abuse um, amongst artists, you know, generations before ours and then coming into ours and what that looked like of like almost glorifying those artists because they were a little bit crazy but you know their artwork is amazing because of them like the headspace they're in and you know like the the pressure of using drugs and whatever as like a coping mechanism for something else but then it was coming it was like being celebrated in a way because these artists were then becoming really famous or, or I don't know, you know, like put in the spotlight, but really they, there were struggles that they were going through. And I mean, looking at how many singers and, and artists like died in their twenties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I know you guys talked about Basquiat in the last episode and I know Lisa's a fan, but he's like, a, you know, pretty big classic example. I, didn't know too much about Basquiat growing up but uh, Tracy bought my daughter a book about Basquiat (laughs) and so I didn't know he got into a very very big car accident where he was basically bed bound for months and that's when he learned how to draw these anatomical figures and that's how he got really interested in that Um, and I think his mom died tragically also maybe his mom had cancer he had experienced a lot of trauma in his young life and then I think being a minoritized person in a space where there were really no black and brown famous artists, right? Like, I can't even imagine that trauma. But yeah, I mean, you know, we have this amazing legacy, but the amount of pain that he must have felt, um, you know, and it's like, these are the times that I think it's complicated is like, um, the art and the art that's generated when people are sort of going through things and channeling their creativity into that process you know, produces really, really amazing things. But then when we celebrate that, are we basically telling that person that that's a state that they should continue to be in? That's like a very kind of tricky place to be at, right? Because is it, you know, is it like the pain and being in a, in a, I don't know, going through a lot in that moment, is that the only way that you can create something that's like impactful? I don't think that the answer is yes. Like, I don't want to believe that that's yes. But when I reflect on recent culture, I feel like we did that. We basically kind of told people as a society, like, oh, you're creative. Oh, then you're dark. And like, you know, and that's really cool and whatever. Um, But yeah, a lot of those people just were sort of suffering, you know? I think um, that archetype of like the struggling and suffering artists and the tortured artist um, was definitely one we perpetuated for a really, really long time. And I think uh, I agree 110% what you were saying about like the mental health arena push to like handle mental health differently now, right? And I think the younger generation is going to see this change. But prior to that, I think our generation, as they hit 
their 20s into their 30s started tackling that question you just asked, right? I know I tackle that myself. Like, who am I when I'm not struggling with my mental health? Like, what does my art have to say? Because I did produce a specific type of art when I was struggling the most. Um, and I've read on lots of other artists say, you know, like, I was afraid to get better because I wasn't sure what that was going to mean for my message or if I lose connection with it. Um, so I think people have been grappling with that for a long time. And then they started to, you started seeing people get to the other side and still be, as long as I think you believe in like transformation or just like changing with your own growth, like you can still generate amazing work on the other side of it, your voice and your identity and image. Like you have to be willing to like lose attachment to that stuff and like trust that something else is going to show up. But I think this younger generation is going to break out of that archetype completely. Just like I think the, um, uh, oh, the, poor struggling artists, starving artists, that's the term I was looking for. Um, I think we started breaking out of that over the past, past 10 years and then the younger generation very much so with social media and having that at their disposal to make money and like build a business, they're not gonna attach to that as much. So I think if these kids are gonna be coming up with these tools around mental health and like just like knowing pillars for setting themselves up for success or dealing with these things, I think in terms of how it relates to art, like beautiful art's always gonna be come out of struggle, right? Um, and I think that that is a good thing because it helps heal a lot, but I think the attachment around identity is starting to crack and like something new is coming out of that now. And I, I do think that, um, that fear that we had of the starving artists is not even anything that you think about now. Like yep. they're just like, I'm going to do this and like, be okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a generation that's had to pivot so much that I guess that idea is certainly not new to them. I was just thinking about, you know, artists uh, now that have reinvented themselves on multiple occasions and still managed to be cool. I mean, look at Taylor Swift and Beyonce. I mean, like they are totally different. I mean, I don't know as much about Taylor Swift, um, but yeah, I mean, Beyonce has changed so much over the years. And I think that people just continue to respect her more in sort of her in in her journey which I think is amazing I mean she's you know gone through so many different you know identities and even just her physical body has looked so different so absolutely yeah yeah those um you know 100 pound nothing bodies are not ideal anymore oh my gosh I know the right. super so super low rise jeans. Hate them. I, uh, I feel like my butt was always too big for that to work for me. Well, yes, everyone just saw everybody else's crack is kind of what happened, I think. <laughs> so motivational interviewing is um a technique that was developed by psychologists, but then you know, really in modern medicine, it's kind of the standard by which we should be helping individuals embark on a journey of behavior change. So that's essentially what it's for. You know, the old school way of thinking in medicine is sort of like you go to the doctor, the doctor says, bah, 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 and then you do bah, 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 and that that's really what it is, right? Um, clearly, it's really ineffective, right? <laughs> then, and I think that the, the modern model of how you should really be doing this is that physicians or clinicians should be working to forge a partnership with the patient to get them to the point that they can make whatever change makes sense for them in the moment. 
So the first tenet of what motivational interviewing is, is essentially um, releasing the outcome, right? So if I am the person who is trying to help someone else make the behavior change, I already have some teeth in the game, right? Like if you're smoking, I don't want you to smoke, right? That it's hard for me not to feel that way. But what I'm supposed to do is I'm supposed to release that outcome. I'm not going to pressure this person to quit to smoke because if they don't want to, like it doesn't matter, right? So you sort of release that. And then it's really figuring out the first step is where are you at, right? You know, like, let's talk about it. And like, where are you at on your journey to want to quit smoking? And quitting smoking is always like the classic example they make the students go through. So it's like, hey, Mr. Fisher, um, I see that you smoke cigarettes. How do you feel about that? Which like students are always like, that's such a weird question. Like, what does that even mean? And I think a lot of times patients will be like, well, what do you mean by that? Right. Uh, and then you'd be like, oh, you know, so, you know, from where I, you know, I, I'm a truth teller, I have to tell you, you know, obviously, we know that there's, there's downsides of smoking. Uh, but I'm not here to judge you, right? Like, I don't know you, I don't know your Did journey. they give you like, a script? Did they give you I'm ad-libbing a little. I'm ad-libbing. But I do, do do this all the time, you know. So, <laughs> You know, so actually for me, I have to talk to kids about marijuana more than I do cigarettes. Nobody smokes cigarettes. Like kids don't smoke cigarettes anymore. But if I have a kid who's smoking marijuana 10 times a day, literally, I'm like, hey, um, you know, it's like kind of a lot, you know? So I, I'm just sort of curious, like, how do you feel about that? And they're like, oh, no. Right. And that the I don't know answer, which which makes um, adults very frustrated by teenagers. So there is a word for that. It's called ambivalence which is like, I just, I don't know equals, I haven't even thought about it. It's not that I don't care, it's I haven't thought about it. So the first step is to get them to think about it. Okay, so then if I'm getting nothing, I'm getting, I don't know. I'm like, okay, so listen, if you don't wanna talk about it, I'm not here to pressure you, okay? I've just heard from other kids, okay? They sort of tell me that sometimes they smoke pot, you know, because they're feeling really anxious and it helps them to calm down. Do you feel like that's one of the reasons why you do that? Yeah. Like, okay. Um, how do you feel about the fact that you're smoking pot 10 times a day? Cause that kind of seems like a lot to me. And they're like, yeah, okay. It's kind of a lot. Okay. So like now we're sort of like meeting some sort of middle ground here. Okay. So how long do you plan on doing this? So like you're 16. This is very expensive. Like how do yeah, you, how that's long are you? So like, how long are you planning to do this? Like, what are your goals for the future? Are you going to get a job? Like, what are you going to do? So then we're starting to sort of, okay, we were moving away from, I don't know to like, oh, actually when I do things, it has consequences, right? We're doing future oriented thinking. So they're like, well, actually, like I'm going to start working as a home health aide. Um, in about a month I'm like you know they're going to drug test you right <laughs> and you've been smoking 10 times a day for the past six months you are going to be positive on drug tests right do you want to get that job yes okay so then maybe we should start like cutting down now so that you can test negative and then you can sort of see how you feel and then we can kind of decide how you how does that sound to you so, oh okay so like it's sort of like using what you have to get them to make a positive behavior change but ultimately that is not coming from me it's like me sort of like highlighting sort of what's going on you know but then helping them in a non-judgmental way to end up where they they want to go and i think ultimately to be a healthy adult 
you need to make informed decisions for yourself all the time. We do things without thinking all the time. I ate 10 cookies today. I didn't think about it. Right. Mm. But it's sort of bringing awareness back to the self, having intention, future oriented thinking, which is obviously really important for teenagers, but for adults as well. So it's sort of like reconnecting everything so that you're not this like sort of separated kind of entity that's just sort of walking from one moment to the other mindlessly, if that makes any sense. And I I think that that leads into something that some people find really hard, but like mindfulness. I feel like we talk a lot like um like adults just in general are not always very mindful or they're like oh i need to work on being more mindful or like having mindfulness um and so i think what's what you're doing in those cases and what other um healthcare and like physicians are doing in that and like creating that internal dialogue within that person will really help them in the future to become more mindful of themselves and not just in like one decision, but as like an overall big picture sort of thing and be able to really see how their actions are affecting them, but also other people. Yeah. And I'll say that sometimes it doesn't work in that way, right? Where a lot of times they're just like, I don't want to talk about it, miss. And I'm like, okay, that's fair. Listen, you do you. If you want to talk about it, you need help cutting down, like I'm here, you can come whenever you don't want me to talk about it. That's fine. I'm not going to. And then that can go either way. Sometimes next year, they're like, hey, I really thought about what you said. I want help to to stop doing this. Or it could just be they want to carry on the way that they're carrying on, which is absolutely fine in people's decision. But we continue to maintain that therapeutic alliance. They don't think that I'm somebody that just is like a know-it-all and telling them and otherizing them, right? They know that if they have another problem that that doesn't involve marijuana, they could talk to me about that, you know, and that's fine, you know? So it's continuing to maintain that therapeutic alliance. Because I think, I mean, I'm sure we've all had these experiences where you go to the doctor and you're like, they just made me feel bad, right? Like, I don't feel heard. They just kind of yelled at me about all of the things that I'm not doing well. You don't want to see them again. You don't actually ever want to go back to the doctor again. What good has that done? You know? So, and I think that the, the motivational interviewing thing, and perhaps this is sort of like an unpopular way of saying this, but I mean, it totally goes to nutritional counseling too, right? All the time. And, you know, how many times do people go to the doctor where the doctor says something not nice about the weight? You know, and there's actually data that shows that doctors really make people feel pretty bad um, when it comes to that kind of stuff. But, you know, I'm just sort of like, how do you feel about your body? Like, do you need help? Like, can I support you? Or like, you're good. Like, you're happy with where you're at and whatever. And then it's like, okay. All right. So you do want help. Like, what have you tried so far? We have a much more meaningful conversation instead of me being like, here's a pamphlet, do this. Okay. Bye. (laughs) Like, what is that? You know? No, I think that um, process is great on a lot of levels, especially like with having that with children and like, just it teaches them, like Tracy was saying with the mindfulness and stuff, it kind of on a lot of levels gives them these skills so that as they approach things down the line, that they have the presence of mind to, um, you know, be able to, like what you're saying about them, him, them potentially wanting that job, but these are the sequence of events that I'm doing. And when you're that young, you don't correlate the two. Like there was a lot, when I was younger, there was a lot of magical thinking I did, right? I just magically thought, say, have this goal. It was just going to happen. I didn't know how to 
set these things in motion to make myself get there. So I kept not reaching that goal. And then I was like, well, I'm doomed or like I'm cursed or, you know, like whatever it was. And it makes you feel extra defeated where like, you know, I think one of the greatest things we could teach to kids is, is like ways of, of the things to think of and the things to put in place and just being open around how to implement those things, you know, like giving them those skills. Yeah. So actually my daughter who is just here a second ago and this was making my crazy face. I'm like, why are you awake right now? Um, you know, she, she was like eating dessert. She had a cookie and she's like, I want another cookie. Can I have another cookie? And I'm like, well, how are you feeling right now? Like check in with your body. What is your body saying to you? My stomach hurts a little bit. I'm like, okay. She's like, I probably shouldn't have another cookie. I'm good. And I'm like, that's kind of incredible, right? That's like more, yeah. that's better than I do. I have stomach aches when I eat cookies all the time and I seem to power through just fine. <laughs> but I think it's like, you know, it, these sounds so complicated, but they're such intuitive things, you know? But I think all of the trauma and thing, I know trauma is such like a, a whatever, I well, shouldn't use trauma, but all of the things that we've experienced sort of, all we do is constantly sever that relationship, body, mind, soul connection all the time. Or like, let's ignore it, you know, instead of like leaning into it and then seeing where we're supposed to go or whatever. But yeah. Absolutely. I think it's, we, we didn't have a lot of those like foundational things growing up and it's, it's taking a beat, asking those questions, knowing those things. Cause that you, when you're brought up with that baseline or that understanding that intuition is there but when you're you're not brought up with that that's when it's like we bypass all these things or we don't think about it or we reach for this other stuff so it's it sounds so simple in theory um and it is when it's brought to you from a very young age i think when you try to teach adults it that's when we like have our like it seems so simple but we have such a hard time with it you know same with like mindfulness such a simple concept but a you know not an easy one you know yeah I was reading the Michelle Obama biography, Becoming, and she said her mom always used to say to them that she's raising adults, not children. And so when they would ask her, hey, mom, can we stay out past curfew? And she'd be like, I don't know why you're asking me that question, because I'm pretty sure you know the answer to that already. And they would never stay out past curfew, right? And I think that that whole like notion of parenting for that generation was pretty atypical, because it was sort of my way or the highway, right? And I think that that's sort of how we did medicine too. Like, this is just how you do it. You just listen to me. Like, but we're human beings with brains and autonomy. And we need to understand process and to be able to get through that point on our own, right? So that's why I think a lot, like we were talking about earlier, that their campaign, just say no to drugs, like, people are not that dumb, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> But, but we really didn't give space for people to sort of like, I don't know, think it through and come up with their own decisions and process. What are all those memes that you see going around? That's like the greatest disappointments in my life is um, like not coming into contact with more quicksand and people not giving me free drugs. <laughs> those, oh. like, well, those were things that like, for some reason, <laughs> were, were talked about so much yeah. and like, I'm like I never saw quicksand in my whole life and no one ever offered me a free drug yeah like that was how it, it was like this fear-mongering way of yeah. like teaching us to make these decisions when really all we needed was to be educated on them I'm sorry do people want that people want quicksand 
No, no like, they made us think it was like an imminent death ish issue when we were little, you know, like, like we it's everywhere, about it, but we never yeah. saw it, you know, yeah. yeah, same with like people offering free drugs all the time, you know, we were warned about that as a kid, and like, people offer you know, free drugs. You know? when what you were little, me now, I mean, like, here, take oh, this. I mean, like, when you're an adult, yeah, I guess. that's when you're an well, adult, maybe I guess when you're a teenager, right? Like, people offer free drugs, they just want to do drugs alone, yeah, know? but. You know, when we were younger and they had like the, they would send the notices home to your parents and they make it like our I specifically remember they sent one home when and this repeats now in this generation, LSD was like in the form of like little kid stickers and they made the parents and us think that someone off the street would be running up to us and like handing us a sticker that was full of LSD and then your child was gonna fucking die from LSD. And I was like, When did that ever happen to anyone? Wow. Never, you know? And like so it's like the idea, the like idea behind those campaigns when we were younger is that as you know small children someone would be like here's all these free drugs you know like yes as a teenager in your 20s people are going to be like hey you want to smoke with me but like that was different than yeah. the campaigns you're pushing when we were little little okay. yeah <laughs> and I, I that reminds me of something i recently learned of um just in general of like <laughs> this is a little bit of a tangent but like crime and and uh the way parents are now really fearful of leaving their kids alone more for like um like harm and kidnapping and like stranger danger sort of thing um but with halloween candy the poisoning of halloween candy all stemmed from like this one incident i think in like maybe the early 80s um of these two girls that died from poison and like tampered halloween candy but it was actually the dad who did it it wasn't just like some random stranger. Oh, like he Lord. did it on purpose. And so the, like it spun out this story of like, now everybody needs to be worried about these things because this is what's happening, you know? And really it was more of an isolated incident, but um, I do think kind of the media and, you know, media feeds on all that crap, but like really flares up the fear of different things. Um, but that just made me think of that which I always thought was kind of wild. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's um, sort of eats now. Like, you know, I think their parents, well, Janet, you would answer that the best out of all of us. Like parents these days are still really warned about like uh, Halloween candy being laced or, and I guess it can be more of a concern with um, in the States where um, uh, weed candy is legal and like the accidental mistaking of one for the other. But um, what are your thoughts on that? Or what's your experience with that? I have no idea. I feel like we're at the age where we go with them and the kid can't even carry their own bag right now. So it sort of like looks like a regular Snickers to me. <laughs> I mm. Um, I mean, like, I guess we kind of, I have to check it because she got some of the packages she can't open. You know, also like you can't leave a four-year-old alone with a bag of candy because only bad yeah. things will happen. Um, yeah, me alone with a bag of candy. Yeah, but I'm like <laughs> trying to think. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that that kind of messaging has been out. I don't know. We don't get any. We don't. We haven't gotten any notices about LSD stickers. I'll tell you that. Uh, <laughs> I went to a Catholic school, so they were. Ah, uh, gotcha, gotcha. Um. I wanted to say one thing about the media stuff about um, kind of related to mental health, um, but for around suicide, um, there's been a lot of like uh, official recommendations that have gone out from like the American Academy of Pediatrics around how people talk about suicides when they happen. Cause it used to be 
you know, like it would, I mean, there was even that book and movie, The Virgin Suicides, right? Like, oh, where, you know, and like, you really have to be so incredibly careful in talking about this stuff, right? Because there's certainly like that bystander effect and, you know, cluster suicides and things like that. Um, and but reasons seemed, why I have that, right? Right. Or thir yeah. uh, 13 reasons why yeah, I think. 13, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yeah, like thinking about how to be really thoughtful in sort of talking about those issues. Like I know that they're important to talk about for raising awareness purposes, but yeah, the media can often sort of run with things. And, you know, one of the nuances in language that has changed, it used to be, we would say people have committed suicide, but now we say people have died by suicide instead, instead of like an act that this person did, you know, it was like they died because of this thing to sort of destigmatize it too. Um, you know, and I think that there still needs to be a lot of work done around mass shootings and how we talk about the individuals that are the perpetrators in those incidents too. Um, because I'm sure there's some sort of bystander effect. I don't know that data. I won't speak to that data in particular, but I think it gets really dicey, especially when we sort of lump together mass shootings, mental health, C, right? Like mm -hmm. it's so complicated, right? Um, mm -hmm. So it, it's like the media can be a scary place for yeah, sure. Yeah, it's, it's villainizing any sort of mental health challenge somebody's having where it, that's not the case. Like not everybody who's dealing with mental health um, issues is going to buy a gun and shoot people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, we're talking about all the super dark things. Um, I was just thinking, uh, so Lisa and I have both been working on campaigns having to deal with like addiction recovery and mental health sort of thing. And so I, I keep finding myself being more exposed to stuff now online. Yeah. And, um, there's one campaign and like I'd have to look it up. I don't remember who sponsored it, but the tagline was an, an alternative to suicide. And I was like, I don't know how I feel about this. Yeah, what is that supposed mm -hmm. to Yeah, what does that mean? Right. I think um, so with a lot of recovery stuff these days or mental health recovery, they're changing some of like the models on how they handle the options for that, right? So like I, and I, I might mess some of this up, but peer-to-peer -peer groups are becoming a better, a bigger thing where they, you know, not only educate the teachers, but educate the children to be able to have these groups with each other. And I know one of the regions that I work with, um, they have something that's along the lines of that statement. And basically yeah. it's, it's like, and I haven't been to any of these events and this is making me realize that I probably should. So I have a better way of answering this, but it's, I think, my understanding is it kind of desensitizes it, right? Because like a lot of people don't like to talk if they have su suicidal ideation, right? And then I think some of the shame surrounding that and the lack of conversation is sometimes can be what pushes people to that. But if you have a group where you can be talk about and you have this way of um, emotion regulating and your options are being brought to you and like, um, because I think a lot of times when people uh, do die by suicide, they felt like that was their only option, right? And right. if they understand their choices or what supports they have, then there are those alternatives there that, that but I'm with you, the wording on that doesn't, yeah. leaves a lot to be wondering, you know? And maybe because I'm not a, their age target for that. So for me, it's still a little like, oh my God, you know, but maybe for somebody 10, 15 years younger for me, they would see that and be like, it's oh i i understand this message that's coming to me and what it's trying to say um 
so it's interesting, like the choice of words that these campaigns are using and, and who they're, they're meant for. Yeah. I mean, I would like to hear a bunch of young people in a focus group kind of comment on that. Cause yeah. I, yeah, I'm not, I, if, to me, it feels a little bit unclear on what it means. Um, but yeah, to sort of, uh, echo everything you said, Lisa, as far as, you know, safety planning is the way that we help to keep people alive, right? Which is reminding people, who do you stay alive for? What do you stay alive for? Like, what can you do when you're feeling this way? And I think, I think the really important thing about safety planning is that it sort of normalizes the fact that suicidal thoughts happen. Because I think that one of the things that that we in, in medicine have done with people struggling with suicidal thoughts is that we have scared the bejesus out of them. And we basically told them by our actions not to tell us, right? Because it's like, huh, you thought about killing yourself six months ago? You have to go to the ER now. Here comes the ambulance. Now they're never going to tell anyone ever again, right? And I think that there's definitely tiers of risk. And I think that lots of people think about death. It's just sort of a reality. But, you know, kind of to your point, we we want the dark thoughts to be brought out of the darkness, right? So I always tell young people, when the dark thoughts stay there, they fester and they get bigger. We got to shine a light into that dark place and you can talk about it. It's okay that you have those thoughts. We just need to make sure you stay alive. That's it. So when it's like, you know, it's the wave of emotions, right? When the thoughts get really big, oh my God, I can't do it anymore. I feel like I need to do something. At the peak of that moment is when you are hopefully doing nothing. That's all. Because that wave is going to come back down and then you will stay safe, right? But so safety planning is really about that emotional regulation piece or just doing something else. And okay, here's a art pivot, okay? There's all these different things that people can do, right? So sometimes people will like text a friend or a crisis resource or whatever, but sometimes people don't want to talk to anybody. You're like crying hysterically or whatever, so I think that like doing things that bring you back to your body, so doing things like doodling or like messing with clay or like, you know, doing things with like fiber, like knitting, crochet, like those are amazing things that involve a task that bring you back to your body and out of your thoughts, um, which really haven't been studied so much. But I think that like, absolutely, it seems like there's a role, right? Like, why would only deep breathing be the only way to bring yourself back into your body? You know, so I'll have young people say, like, if they're feeling really overwhelmed, like they'll just start like, you know, whatever scribbling or like they'll color or whatever. And it it is a specific act that is directed to do something else to distract them until that wave is gone. So I think that that could be a really powerful tool, too. No, absolutely. Um and I think it's, it's absolutely that it's, it's giving language to it, giving kids these options, making it not so dramatized because when we were younger, it was dramatized. Right. So like, if you did have these thoughts, like you said, either something really severe would happen, people would scare you. And then also by, since it wasn't normalized, it was, if you did have it and you did vocalize and you had that reaction from someone, or you would just have this extreme worry, which would create more fear and more shame. And if anyone who's been down that cycle, we all know that like just the fear and shame alone can make things so much worse, so much worse. But when you've been through it a few times and you know that one, it's it's a wave, like you said, and it, it's going to go on the other side or 
you know, you have these other options or that you're not alone, then that makes all the difference. You know, I think the older generation I noticed still, even our generation, like, um, while talking about mental health is more normalized, there's still an element in certain communities that if you talk about the things you've been through, you just want attention or you want people to feel sorry for you or things like that. Whereas the point with that is that if, if we bring kids up discussing this stuff, it's not like, I think limiting shame helps so much and it creates more community care. Like if this is just something normal, we all understand that we have, then we're able to ride those waves more, be of a more of a support for each other. And like, also we're starting to move into the conversations of the more supportive things to do, you know, like what are the skills that I give to get myself out of it, or even just make space for the larger conversations that come next in terms of around like community building and just, you know, what comes after we've gotten this baseline set, you know? Yeah. I think it's, it's been interesting sort of seeing all of the different kind of movements coming out during and post pandemic, but I think sort of the ugly side of the movements is that sometimes people are like, I have it worse than you though, right? And instead of making space for lots of different types of people and their unique struggles and things like that, for everyone to feel seen, like my trauma, your trauma experiences are not bigger or worse than somebody else's, right? Um, That's a hard, it's been hard, you know, hearing the drama on all sides around that kind of stuff. Um, and I don't think that the shame, I think even in the medical community, I, there's absolutely still so much shame. Um, I mean, a lot of medical boards, state license boards ask you if you've ever been treated for a medical condition in order to apply for a medical license. Like who's going to say yes. yes, right? You're just, to me, that's like just asking people to lie. But, you know, these are just things that are still there. Like we are... <laughs> people that are taking care of other people but we're not allowed to be not not okay you know um so it's it's really messed up still you know really really messed up still we have a lot of work to do I think um and I think uh, I'm sure you guys sort of relate to this too but I think in the work environment um you know people taking time for mental health I don't know like I think that maybe as a whole we're doing better at being accepting of that but is it the same like peer-to-peer where people are really accepting i think it's really dependent you know lisa just wrote an article about that Ah. um it was on like supporting mental health in the workplace and like toxic work environments and things like that and um you know you have the cdc and uh, a few of the other like big name um organizations had which I didn't even know until I started looking into it that they did that they're starting to do research and work into what creates um, a supportive workspace for mental health what is a toxic environment the statistics behind it and they've made these like guidelines and stuff for businesses to start following and there are some really big companies that have started implementing this I, I can't tell you the year they started and some of them have reported their data in terms of like the companies that have started these initiatives and are doing this work they notice that it like creates this, it should not come down to profit at all. Like it, that should not be the thing that draws people to want to bring this in their business, but let's be real. It's a capitalist society. That's going to be the end game for businesses. Um, it, it ends up being the better bottom line for them when they have these things in place where the conversation around it is better. The managers have better conversations. You don't tolerate really toxic behavior. Um, you have programs in place. You allow mental health days, um, there's a few, there's like a whole list of things they recommend. Um, and I think 
the really progressive bigger businesses that can afford to do it are starting to do it. Then you have like the progressive work communities that just care about it, right? Some of these like millennial businesses or younger generation businesses that it's just like a pillar of what's important for them have implemented it on their own. And now you're starting to see, I, I think from my perspective and my opinion, just the everyday businesses, it's going to start um, becoming part of the conversations there. Like they may not have stuff in place, but it's inevitable. I know so many people who are looking to take either mental health time from work or looking at options or just even just in their head struggling with that whole process of what are their options? What should they do? Um, and, you know, as these younger kids come up with just the understanding that it's okay to have this, they're going to enter the workplace only choosing places that ha are um, educated on being a, um, you know, advocate for mental health within that environment. Have you been noticing in schools too? Sorry, Janet. No, no, go ahead. Um, in schools too, like I had, there. I remember one classmate, his mother was a therapist and I remember he would take days off and he'd be like, oh, I took a mental health day. And we'd all be like, what the hell? You know, <laughs> like, what does that mean? And then, and now it, you're like, oh, your mom was like, really aware of what was going on with you emotionally and understood the importance of you having downtime and yeah. advocated for that and supported that and allowed you to do that. And now I think that's, that's becoming more and more of the norm, even for parents caring for their kids and, and realizing that like burnout can happen for kids too. It's not just adults and they need some downtime sometimes. I'm going to say something that is totally the opposite of all of this just to sort of be a little contrarian but also maybe showing a little bit of my true self i i in full support of all of those things but it's like if there's that drive in you to like do better to get that promotion to get the raise yes maybe i will work at night maybe i will take that lunch meeting maybe i wouldn't use all my vacation days right and i think that even in these companies where they create these things where you have unlimited PTO and whatever, people don't take it because there's still that like drive to sort of succeed. And I think that's a really hard thing to balance, right? Because I think drive and, and being motivated to achieve more can be an absolutely positive thing, right? But when are things enough? When is it time for you to say like, I don't have to do all of the things, all of the things, <clears throat> It's a it's a it's a conversation I have with myself often, right? I feel like for me to not keep trying to do new stuff, like it's like me not being my true self. But I have to sort of know, like I have to create concrete guardrails for myself. Otherwise, I know that it, I will flame out eventually. But my goodness, it's not intuitive at all. Even when the workplace like gives you space for that, like I have so much more time off than I did before too. But I'm like. Do I just check the email? Oh, I didn't, I, you know, like uh, uh, maybe I'll put on do not disturb, but then I like still check it, you know, um, it's a practice that's hard, you know, especially when we grew up in a culture, this like very American yeah. thing. Go, right? go, go. Constantly yeah. trying and reaching for something more. Right. Americans live to work. That's just what we do. Right. Mm -hmm. that, and so it's like hard not to be that way, you know. And I think there's, benefit to both sides of that right like I think there's times where like working and bearing like I'm just gonna start like I do think there's times where working and burying yourself in your work will help you through a difficult time like I just yes. experienced this past year I threw myself 
into a bunch of project, projects and like just worked my ass off. And that helped me through a difficult period where prior times I probably just would have like not gotten out of bed. And mm-hmm. I think I really needed that during that time. And at the same time, though, I needed like acceptance and language around like other things I was struggling with. Um, and then there's been other times where I couldn't do any of that. And I really just needed to rest and I needed care. So I do think that like we have to leave space open for different people need different things at different times. And, um, you know, there's just different paths to healing and, and, um, we just want, like, I think it's good that we will have the option, the knowledge and the option and the conversation around all these things. Um, and that teaching ourselves how to check in with ourselves and know, what's right for us. And then like you're saying, putting the parameters up to make sure we don't overwork or overdo certain things out of habit, or even like just that a family pressure, cultural pressure, like all the other things that play into why we have these desires or architects within inside of us. Yeah, no, for sure. I want to ask everybody to say a little bit of how they think art plays a role in their lives and in their mental health. If you are feeling a certain way some like, type of way some type of way, <laughs> way. Mm-hmm. how how and why do you turn to art or creating in that moment to to help you get through it I can go first with my least artiest things um <clears throat> I think that there is pretty good data around task completion being a really powerful tool for mental health right and and I think the whole process of being creative and, and seeing a project to completion, I think, is really important. I know that for me, when there's something looming, like a contract negotiation that is completely outside of my power and you don't know when you're going to get a response, I'm like, I have to do a thing. Um, so like I'll like make like macrame plant hangers or whatever, just because it's like it's going to take me a good chunk of time. It's going to involve some creativity, a little bit of math. But like, it's like a tactile thing that's like mostly repetitive that sort of allows me to kind of channel into like a task. Same thing with like kneading bread, I feel like is like a really nice one. You also get to eat a lot of starches, which is wonderful. Who doesn't love that? Um, And it's like something that could be shared with other people. But it's just something about that tactile, repetitive task thing that I think is like, I feel like that process is really healing for me. I can't make that much other stuff. So that's, you know, if I was more creative, perhaps I could make cooler things. <laughs> yeah, but I do feel like you will at least try things once. Like yeah. You, you like dabble in a lot of things and then you kind of find your thing and you're like, oh, I actually enjoy this. I'm kind of good at it. And it makes me feel good at the end. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It For me, it's all about the process, you know, and I think like gardening, planting, that kind of stuff, it feels less creative but it does sort of involve like the 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 process of bringing beauty into a space right um but yeah that's also like another really tactile concrete thing which is something that I really enjoy too also it makes me feel connected to something that's bigger than myself right because I remember like I eat this thing and then I function like that is crazy (laughs) like being like we like how right and then I turn into fertilizer like and some you know the whole circle of life thing to me is like a really nice way for me to be long game the long long game game, long game like maybe this thing doesn't matter that much (laughs) because I'm fertilizer (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, that's what Simba's dad told him. That seemed to work for him. And he wasn't even like disturbed by it. He was like, okay, and then I'm grass. Do they talked about it? And the kid was cool with it. He was like, I know. He was like, okay, I'm going to be king. And then I died. Not anxiety inducing at all. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. I would would love to hear from the hosts. (laughs) Adrian, you go. You've been pretty quiet. Um, I definitely think I use like music like a lot, like mm-hmm. as far as like you're saying, like you turn to art, like um, to play music that makes me feel like different, I don't know, like happier or something I can relate to. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not even something that makes me feel necessarily happy, but um, I still turn to it anyway, um, I guess, because it feels good to relate to something. Yeah um and like it's grounding or something Mm -hmm. um I think ultimately I sometimes write like my own kind of creative writing stuff bits um but I also I think if I were to like feel like I don't know inspired and that's because of maybe a challenge in my life i would sketch or something mm-hmm. or like, maybe make a, a doll i know right um <laughs> to bring that up i was like what <laughs> like, why are you making corn husk dolls i love it um, <laughs> we should bring our kids line of them now <laughs> no, yes. like... and did we talk about this before and uh, maybe not maybe uh uh liquid death all of their yes yes yes. that's how we got into like we ended that episode yeah who buys they have a new one obviously chris yeah uh they have a new one and it is a a can recycling box and it's the as seen on tv guy i don't know you gotta look it up anyways yeah i'm gonna see this Uh, does he get his own doll just like uh what's his name no he has a his face on one of those boxes that you like put cans in and you put it through his open mouth oh wow it is uh i see that stuff creative. everywhere now mm-hmm. i mean i saw it before but i didn't quite pay a lot of attention now that we've talked about it i see it everywhere it is just it makes me laugh so hard and i really want to be on that marketing team mm-hmm. because i'm like i have really out there ideas too that only i think are funny but you guys would get it like that. That's how I feel. So we were talking about how you use art for your own healing. Yeah. And I'm, and I was saying something like, there's been a time when like, I was like in a bad place or whatever, emotionally, mentally, whatever. Um, And I remember I was already toying with this idea of like, having a bed that like makes itself but like I like I remember like drawing like something that was like a prototype of like what I would make it like of like a bed that made itself just like stupid stuff like that no but that's really interesting because you know I know that something that people will kind of tell people that are struggling with mental health stuff is like just do the first thing right like do the first thing like make your bed to start it off yeah and so it's interesting yeah Yeah, and it's interesting that you took that and then designed something that would make it (laughs) no it's like amazing I mean especially 
reflecting on the interview that you gave, you know, for yourself and sort of like how you were product designing, like the iPhone and all that other stuff. That's really cool. <laughs> Not the iPhone. Or whatever, whatever. That's what I thought it was. I thought. Yeah. Is the real inventor of the iPhone. <laughs> He's been a designer of the iPhone because he was so ahead of his time. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, Basically. <laughs> I made the iPhone. We did. Yeah, or if it or it's like sort of like you were drawing a manifestation of where you wanted to be at, right? To the point that you could make your own bed, which is really cool. I mean, I'm sure like a lot of people were making like the iPhone at the same time or like thinking about the same thing. Like it seems like the camera was made in like several different ways all at once, you know. Yeah. There's that theory, I forgot who came up with it, but it they talked about in Big Magic was that like once an idea is initially birthed into the ether in some part of the world. And this was back before we had phones and the internet and stuff. They found that the same concept or very close to it would suddenly pop up in three other different places not long after that. So it's like once one person has an initial idea, bunch of people, like it's like out there in the collective unconscious for people to grasp onto. Right. Like it was time for the idea to be born. I feel like you guys talked about the Rick Rubin book, which I also yeah. really love too. Oh, so good. Yeah. So I good. I still haven't even finished it because it's so good that I've been slowly savoring it. Yes, me too. I have too. the audio book and oh. I have the physical book and I switched mm-hmm. between the two because mm-hmm. his voice is so good. I know. So calming. So calming. Yeah. All right. Who wants to share next? What mm-hmm. artistic practices that you do to promote self healing and processing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can. I, go, I, I can think of a couple of ways. Yeah, sure. Go. One, which I don't do as much now, but I used to do a lot. Maybe like ten years ago or so, was paint my nails. Mm-hmm. Um. So not necessarily like pen on paper, whatever. But um, I used to find that as like very calming, and it also like really made me kind of focus like you were saying like really like focus and channel my energy into something so i would do these like really intricate designs on my cool. nails that's like my sister that she still does that yeah as like her mm-hmm. her self-care thing i also think that doing nails is really great because it forces you to do nothing afterwards mm-hmm. yeah and you have to just sit there i yep. used to do it at night mm-hmm. where like if i was having a really stressful day in the <laughs> afternoon i'd come home and i'd like be like all right i'm gonna like sit here do my nails i was gonna like zone out do whatever not not do things because that's mm-hmm. u- that's usually my my form of stress relief is like stress cleaning or mm-hmm. i used to like go for a run or go for a bike ride or like just like movement which is still i mean it's still really good for stress relief but i do yeah painting the nails was one thing that i used to do um more so now i think probably just doodling or writing um nothing really like process heavy but just being able to have that freedom just to kind of write and put things down onto paper and like step away from devices I think that's a big thing Mm -hmm. for me is being able to just like put my phone somewhere Mm -hmm. and then be like quiet and even like not even have the tv on like I find a lot of times I mean maybe you guys feel this way too but like after a really long or like tough day at work of like talking or dealing with a lot of people being on meetings and then your drive home you're like i don't even want to listen to the radio mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah. That silence mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Does frying chicken count? I probably like. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. baking bread counts. Absolutely, yeah. frying chicken counts. Yeah. Yeah, I think creating something, sustenance, being able to make food, share it. I do really love cooking for people. Yeah. And I think cooking even for yourself is like you set out to do something for you, right? Not only did you nourish yourself, you wanted to make it delicious for yourself too, because you were deserving of that, I think is really powerful. That's like mindfulness in itself too, Mm -hmm. you know, cooking as mindfulness. Yeah. And then just knowing that what you're consuming is healthy or Mm -hmm. maybe depending Mm -hmm. fried chicken is questionable. But yeah. <laughs> right. it feeds the soul. That's it's good. very important. Yeah, it's both the healthy stuff and the you know <laughs> delicious mm-hmm. stuff. Chicken for the soul. <laughs> I watched um the New York Times cooking little series around cooking for one, and I loved it because it's about you deserve delicious food, even if you're by yourself, you don't have to just get takeout. Like you deserve the process of going to the store and getting good things for yourself. I loved hearing that. I don't think I don't often cook for just myself, but I feel like I would almost want to now because now I'm like, yeah, I deserve that. Like I can make myself a fabulous thing, you know, it's It's like doing nails, but delicious. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Apparently, <laughs> just cook for myself like you know there have been times where like people have been around and i can share it with them and that's great but like more often than not it's because i'm like crazy craving something and i'm like i have to learn how to cook this and i'm just so like definitely cooking for yourself is when i can acquire the only problem is sometimes when i do it i like am not hungry all of a sudden after i've made all that food you know like you're smelling it you're tasting it that's like, actually oh, um yeah, i do that that's too. a trick that they tell you if you're on a, like a weight loss journey, that cooking for yourself is one of the best things you can do because in the process, you're like eating some things and tasting some things. So you actually end up consuming less at the end of the meal. Totally mm. believe it. Cause yeah, half the time after I make something, I'm like, I'm not really hungry anymore. And you're taking, it's, um, there's a, there's also a lot that has to do with like breathing and breath instead of just like having food in front of you and then like eating it so it's more of a process that you're working through and your body has more time to like um to process the food you're putting in to signal to your brain like okay this is enough sort of thing Uh, yeah that is the thing at least uh um yeah there's a few different ways i mean first off i think that like it took me a long time to and we, I said this during the Eric episode, um, to accept the fact that I think making work and completing work, I love the fact that you address the whole like completing work thing. I didn't learn that till this year till I finally actually started completing projects, but, um, making work is absolutely integral to my mental health. When I, during the years that I wasn't or couldn't get myself motivated to do it, I definitely think it played a very big role in some of the issues I was having. Um, and so I definitely think making work helps keep my mental health balanced, right? But then say, if I am dealing with something, I will do things like write, um, just like stream of consciousness poetry or just like um, stream of consciousness essay style stuff or work, write, like just it, various forms of it. Sometimes I'll share it, sometimes I won't. I do think the sharing component does, it plays a role in like my healing process for sure. I'm realizing that um, this year, I've like worked that into like making these like inspirational abstract videos. Some are artsy, some are not, and just kind of corny, like literal inspiration talks, but just the 
act of editing, finding something that inspires me, then chopping up that video. I really love editing and chopping up videos this year for some reason. Um, and then like just, or finding like weird old clips of like cool music videos or movies or just like, I don't know, something that I'm, I get weird obsessions about stuff. Um, doing that, putting that out helps. And then um, I think other things inspiration just always comes into stuff a lot so whether it be watching a movie that inspires me or like being like I'm just gonna select this random thing and hopefully it has a message for me and like that's a lot of my process with self sometimes is I'm like I'll let the answer come to me and I'll be like read a book that'll hopefully do that or watch a movie or listen to something um and I think there's definitely, I've learned the benefit of doing more tactile things this past year and really understanding the importance of coming into my body. So that's part of it too. Um, and I think I'm usually using art in some way to work out something that's going on with me mental health wise and or spiritually, they're usually both interconnected. Um, uh, and I think it's just like a usual thread throughout my work. Um, but in like these more intense moments, I will usually pick some type of form to like work it out for sure. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Oh, and dance. That's the other thing. There was a period of time. I haven't really done it so much lately. That's another thing about being in your body um, is I started doing, I'm like not coordinated with like choreographed dance at all and I really 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 wish I was so I wish I could do like true dance classes but I was doing this um it started with ecstatic dance I went to this ecstatic dance group that was in North Carolina here for a while and then I learned about something called contact improv and contact improv is so cool and amazing and um basically it's this idea that like you there's no set movements but you learn how to like share weight on you'll like be moving around and dancing and then you have this partner and you learn how to balance weight on each other and like I'll have to like show you guys videos or something later but um I started doing some of those classes and learning some of the techniques for it and talk about like it's all improvisational but then it's also working with someone else's energy and you have to be like centered in your breath and like learn how to like understand your body and balance weight and really be present and I was loving it um and that very much helps you work through stuff and be present in your body. But also it made me aware of certain blocks I had because it was in that class that I realized that I have a tendency to like hold my breath for long periods of time, right? Like things, basic things about my body and how I handle stress or like my own issues that I was not aware of. I think that also just goes into like, I truly believe like dance is just another form of healing too, especially that kind of dance because you are for, it's like somatic therapy. It's like another form of somatic therapy and like being in your body and things like that. Um, and then you're working on like layers of vulnerability and vulnerability and trust and, and stuff along those lines. So um, I do think body work and dance and um, is, is another layer that can be explored for that too. And there have been times where I've dipped into that. It's been a minute, but. I think that's awesome. I was, I always think that in my past life, I was a dancer. <laughs> when awesome. I was little, I used to choreograph these really elaborate dances to That's whatever so song. And then I actually, well, I was on the step team for a hot second in college. What? But oh, you I didn't did know that? I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. I feel like I dress um, as a dancer in this current life. I, I dress as a dancer in this current <laughs> life. But I feel the same way. I love dancing. 
but I could never, I don't know what it is. I, I don't think that my brain like thinks that fast or like absorbs things that fast and like converts them into motion. And so yeah. being in dance class and learning dance was very, it's very hard for me. It was the same for me. I was so frustrated because I loved it so much. And I was like, why can I not? I think it was like my, like, yeah, it just, my brain doesn't translate it well. I dreamed Zumbas. We're used to Zumba. Mm -hmm. Zumba queen. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did one Zumba class and I was like, oh no, not for me. Yeah, I don't get a workout when I do Zumba because I can't follow the moves effectively. Same. The the lady's (laughs) like, just work, just pay attention to your feet. And I'm like, can I just pay attention to my arms? Yeah, yeah. If it's closer to my brain, I can control it more easily. Yeah. Do whatever you want to do, like when you do Zumba. Yeah, I don't have the cojones to do that, you know? And I think that that's, yeah. You can take it at. That's right. That's right. I do. I miss the days of like going to a club and like dancing all night. Yes. If if it's not choreographed, I can dance. Like I love it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like there should be like an alternative for people our age where it's not quite clubbing, but you can go out and you can dance and have a good time, but it's not quite as extreme as. Yeah. I'm pricky about my music though, too. Uh, guys, I haven't stayed up till midnight I was in just thinking. forever. This is crazy. <laughs> I'm gonna wake up at six. So four hours now. Yeah. Do you go to the hospital? You go to the hospital. Oh no! I just Joe just gonna be like, "Mommy, I want to go downstairs." And be like, oh, yeah, "Why?" Yeah, it's basically what's gonna happen in the morning. So yeah, no, I don't have to go to the hospital tomorrow. He's got a adult. Yeah. Cycle stays the same. Thank you for listening to this episode of Art Kids. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Janet Lee. For artwork, resources, and music credits, visit the Art Kids website at artkidspodcast.com. That's Art Kids with a Z. Until next time, ciao. Freedom over fame, the cycle stays the same. Freedom over f- cycle stays the same.